right, as we continue in our series in the book of Numbers, I would invite you to open to Numbers 12. We've spent a lot of time uh, working through Numbers 11, and now as we get to Numbers 12, we're going to kind of take the whole thing in one shot, right? So as we are... Um, as we are working through this, I'll give you just a moment to get there. <clears throat> we find ourselves uh, having dealt with the grumbling and complaining that took place in chapter 11, once again dealing with the unbelief that is uh, evident in complaining. Let's read this chapter together. Numbers chapter 12. I'm reading from the NIV 1984 edition, which is, of course, Heaven's Preferred Translation. Uh, and uh, as we go through this, hopefully you'll be able to follow the pattern uh, that Moses is laying out in the writing here. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then? Were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had leprosy, and he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, do not hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb, with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on till she was brought back. After that, the Lord left Hazaroth, or the people left Hazaroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Father, as we open your word together today, we pray that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, illumine it to our eyes. Help us to be able to see clearly what our flesh can only see in a limited way. Father, this is a spiritual book revealing eternal truths. You have revealed yourself, your heart, your character, your will through the written word. 
Help us to see what we can't see on our own. Help us through it to become what we can never become on our own. As the renewing of our mind affords us the transformation of our heart by your Spirit. Father, protect us. The enemy seeks to deceive us, to get into our heads and bring up all of the distractions, maybe the hurts, the difficulties. We ask now, Lord, that that you would protect us from that. Father, the difficulties that we face throughout the week, the heartache, the physical ailments, these things can easily discourage us and keep us from engaging with you. And so we lay them at your feet. The loved ones that we care about who are dealing with illness, even terminal illness, we lay them at your feet. Father, we pray that you would move in this moment, that you would change us, and that in changing us, you would receive glory. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. As Miriam and Aaron are speaking against Moses, I just wonder (laughs) if that reminds you at all of how we respond. See, Miriam and Aaron... These are Moses' brother and sister, right? They're, they're close to him. They love him. They value him, or we would think so. But in this moment, they're a little overcome. Remember that in chapter 11, after Moses complains to God about his situation in leading God's people, the people complained about God, and God heard them. Moses complains to God, and God responds by giving him the the elders, by having him appoint 70 people, and God then places a a portion of his spirit, as as the text describes it, on these elders that they might take on the leadership role that Moses has, that they would shoulder the burden together. There's no mention of Miriam and Aaron in here. And it seems, as we read the text, that Miriam and Aaron are upset either because they weren't among the elders, which is probably less likely, but more that God spoke through Moses appointing these elders and Miriam and Aaron, through whom God has also spoken, seem to be left out. They don't seem to have a role. They don't seem to have a say. God isn't speaking to them. He's not calling the elders through them. And as he uh, does what he does through Moses, all of a sudden we hear from them where we haven't heard before, and they speak against him. And interestingly, they speak against his wife, or they speak against him on account of his wife. That sounds a little like gossip, like slander. They're putting him down and putting her down But that's not really the point, is it? Like we so often do as well, the problem that they talk about isn't the problem that they really have. The issue isn't the issue. 
It's the issue behind the issue. And this brings us to our core reality for today. Jealousy of others undermines God's authority and brings judgment. Jealousy of others undermines God's authority and brings judgment. Miriam and Aaron act badly because they have hearts that have been drawn into uncleanness. As we work through this, we'll take a look a little bit at what they're going to do here. and We see the complaint and we see the confrontation and then we see the correction. And hopefully in the process, we'll see ourselves that we might be able to correct the problem before God has to rebuke us in this way. All right, so let's, uh, let's jump into this. Let's look at the complaint. In the first two verses there, we see Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Now, there's some debate as to whether this is his wife, a Zipporah, who is described as a Midianite, and they're using this term Cushite perhaps as a, as a slam against her, as a, as a slander, uh, as uh, there's a, a relationship to cursedness in the way they look at it. Or if this is a second wife, and, and many reliable scholars think that's more likely that uh, Zipporah died and he's remarried and now he's married a Cushite. Uh, he had once married a Midianite, which was not uh, pleasing to many of the people, and then he married a Cushite. It really doesn't matter because they're not really complaining about the wife. They want to get at Moses. And so they bring this up. But notice how this happens in, in verses 1 and 2. They, they talk against him because of his wife, on account of his wife. And they say this. You tell me if this sounds like they're talking about his wife. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? They ask. Hasn't he also spoken through us? That's the issue. They're not upset about the wife. That's just a place to get a jab. That's, that's where they, they get a foothold. They're upset because Moses is in charge. Because Moses is getting the glory and the credit. But realistically, Moses isn't getting the glory, is he? The glory is going to the Lord through Moses. They just don't like being on the lower platform. Hasn't God spoken through us too? And notice the last part of verse 2. And the Lord heard this. Where have we seen that phrase before? We see that phrase when you're complaining not to the Lord, but about the Lord. You're complaining about the circumstances that God's placed you in. The people grumbled because of their hardship, and the Lord heard it. The people grumbled because of the manna they wanted meat, and the Lord heard them. They're talking... But they're not praying. Moses had a very specific, direct complaint. Sounds pretty bad to our ears as we read it, but he complained to the Lord. He took his problems to the throne. When our hearts get sideways, when we get wrapped up in our own pride, which leads to jealousy, the last thing we want to do is actually talk to God about it. Instead, we complain. Woe is me. 
Why is this happening to me? This isn't where I thought my life would be. I really felt like, you know, I should have a better fill in the blank. Really, Moses? I mean, he's got the, he had that stuttering problem, remember? Aaron's the better speaker. Why, was it, why is God using Moses? Miriam, I, I'm the older sister. You'd have been drowned in the, in the river if it weren't for me. And what are we, chopped liver? They're upset because their focus is on their own credit and glory. And they don't like the way this is going. You can fill in the blanks there under complaint. Jealousy caused Miriam and Aaron to speak against their brother, God's appointed leader. Jealousy caused Miriam and Aaron to speak against their brother, God's appointed leader. God had put Moses in this position. We remember that story from Exodus. God will reaffirm that in just a moment. But they weren't speaking against him because of legitimate problems. They were speaking against him because they wanted the attention, the glory, the power, and they felt like they were not getting a fair shake. Jealousy asserts that I deserve the attention or power or glory that someone else has. As a general concept, it's the resentment of a rival. Sometimes that's a good thing, right? There's a, there's a righteous jealousy, a holy jealousy that a husband or wife can feel toward an interloper, right? You, you come try to get with my wife, we're going to have an issue, right? We're, we're going to talk, although she's going to handle that, so I don't have to worry about it. But that's right. You should feel jealous about that. That's the resentment of a rival, and in that case, a righteous resentment of a rival. But there is an unhealthy, unholy jealousy that is selfish and irrational. And we see that all the time in relationships, don't we? Let me just, as a side note, just for those of you who are keeping tabs on relationships, this is, this is free, it's not part of the text here. But it is always an unhealthy jealousy when someone you are not married to causes you to feel you need to control them to protect your possession. Yes, I said that on purpose. When you see that person as a possession, that is only appropriate in marriage. And yes, it is appropriate in marriage to have and to hold. There is a mutual ownership. I am hers and she is mine. We belong to one another. And there is a possessiveness in that that is right and reflective of God. But if you ain't married, that ain't you, right? That is an unhealthy place to find that jealousy. So, for all the single ladies, let me just point out, you don't have a right to get protective over that guy and who he's talking to. And, fellas, you got no business telling her who she can talk to and be around. But do bear in mind, that their character is revealed, the other person's character is revealed in how they handle relationships with you and with others when you're not married. Let that tell you something in making your decision before you get married. All right, let's get back on track here. No charge for that. As a general concept, 
We need to understand that jealousy in itself isn't bad, but there is a good place and a bad place. The Lord describes himself as a jealous God, meaning he tolerates no rivals. Of course that's holy. It's righteous. It's good because he alone is God and there is no other. But here in this situation, Miriam and Aaron are jealous of the, of the position and the attention, the affection that God has granted to Moses. It's a, it's a coveting kind of jealousy. I want what I don't have. I want what he's got. It's not fair. Doesn't it just sound like a three-year-old? It's not fair. But she got to play with it longer than I did. It's my turn. Miriam and Aaron are in that same spot. Why is Moses getting all the credit? What, what's going on here? So they're jealous of his position and attention. But that position and attention was given by God. It was granted by God to Moses. They have a coveting jealousy, not a righteous jealousy. They attack him personally, as we so often do, and also his wife, because of that ungodly attitude inside of them. Their complaint against her is just a pretext. They're mad about one thing, so they attack another. It reveals, though, where their hearts are in the moment. By the way, it appears that Miriam is the instigator here. The, the, the verb used about them speaking against is in the feminine, as a woman speaking. That may indicate why Miriam is the one that has the leprosy. But Aaron goes right along with her, demonstrating once again, just as he did with the golden calf incident, that where he should be strong and a leader as the high priest of God's people, instead, he's weak. And he follows where he ought to lead. How simple would it have been if Miriam were to start to talk about this and, and Aaron says, hey, sis, knock it off. This is God's thing. God does what God wants, and we don't have the right to speak against it. And perhaps Miriam would have said, you know what, you're right. I, I never should have even got thinking that way. And we avoid the whole situation if they both humble themselves enough to accept what God has put in place. How often do you and I get caught up lamenting the unfair treatment we have? or the unjust boss we have, or the improper leaders we see around us. And we get so focused on these things that we forget that none of them are in place apart from God's sovereign will. There's a lot of sticky places to deal with there, and we won't be able to get to all that today, but hopefully we'll be able to see a little bit of it as we go. We don't want to miss the point, however, of this text. And remember, as we're working through the entire book of Numbers, the overarching theme here is that our unfaithful choices have consequences. But God remains faithful. God doesn't change. And when He promises, He delivers. So when He calls a covenant people, God keeps His covenant even when the people don't. And we'll see continuing stories as this builds culminating with 40 years of walking away from God and wandering around the wilderness so that none of this generation actually entered the promised land. That's a, that's a pretty downer of a story, isn't it? It's kind of sad. 
These are God's people. He delivered them from Egypt. He gave them himself in the form of the law. He revealed himself to them in a way that he never revealed himself to any other people anywhere on the planet. And even today, we have God's word because he spoke to the Israelites. And yet, yeah, three days of marching is kind of tough. Let's grumble against God. You know that manna, I'd, I'd really rather have some pizza, or quail pizza, I guess is fine. So let's grumble against God. I don't really like who God's put in place over me, so let's grumble. And as they grumble against Moses, they are grumbling against God. When we reject God's provision, when we oppose God's delegated authority, we are rejecting and opposing him. In any case, whether Miriam is the driver here or, or Aaron is or both, they're both guilty of sin, as Aaron later is going to acknowledge. Jealousy caused Miriam and Aaron to speak against their brother, God's appointed leader. Now, let's spin this forward. As a broad concept coming out of this, we can see, and you can mark this down, our response to authority reveals our attitude towards self, others, and God. Our response to authority reveals our attitude towards self, others, and God. In the same way that we see their attitude revealed in the passage, our response to authority reveals our own heart in at least three ways. It shows what we think of ourselves. We tend to elevate ourselves. Our pride gets a hold of us. We, we get jealous of someone in authority. We resent that authority. And we elevate ourselves because we could do better or we ought to do better or we know better. And that then shows how we regard those whom God has placed over us. When I think that I'm better, I'm elevating myself and I'm denigrating that person that God or that group or whatever that God has put in authority. I'm showing my attitude toward them. And there's a resentment that comes from that pride and jealousy. As a result of these things, it shows how we look at God as the ultimate authority. When we look at God as the ultimate authority, and we recognize that God has placed people in authority, it changes the way we respond to authority. It's pretty important for us to recognize this. And, and as Americans, that might raise questions in your mind about whether the American Revolution was actually godly or was it sinful. I don't think we'll have time to talk about that, but hopefully you'll see the principles as we go. I have some very specific uh, thoughts about it. But we need to focus on the text. In Romans 13, you don't have to turn there. I'll invite you to turn to 1 Peter 2. But in Romans 13, Paul describes what it looks like to submit ourselves to authorities. And he talks specifically about submitting ourselves to governing authorities. But not only to governing authorities, really to all authorities. And later on, Paul will say, in Ephesians chapter 5, that we in the church are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So our view of Christ, the reality of Christ in our lives reflected through our relationships, 
puts us in a position where we have an attitude of deference, of submitting to one another. So as the husband in my marriage, I am not unaware that Paul calls my wife to submit to me. But I would be foolish if I didn't recognize that in a similar manner, I need to submit to her. Yes, I need to submit to her. Not in our roles, but in our attitudes. God has called us to specific roles, but all of us as believers are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In her role, she submits to me as the church submits to Christ so that she presents a picture of our relationship to the Lord. But my role with a submissive attitude toward her is to embrace the role of leadership that God has called me to, not given me. I think, I think when we say it that way, we confuse ourselves. It's not like it's some great privilege that God's given you. In fact, the passage in Ephesians 5 describes it as an overwhelming burden. The job of the husband is to love your wife the way Christ loves the church and laid himself down for her. That's self-sacrifice. If you're not self-sacrificing, if you're not giving up your rights to love your wife, you're missing the picture. It's a mutual submission within defined roles. Now, Romans 13, Paul is saying, submit to the authorities. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I did all this yakking and I didn't turn there, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says really the same thing, starting with verse 13. Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. You may remember, in, uh, as I just mentioned in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority. As he says, the king here, you might recognize that the kings of Israel were not good for the most part. And as Peter's writing this, the emperor in Rome is not good, does not love the Lord, and you're moving more and more toward a a government persecution. You haven't arrived there yet. A government persecution of Christians. That's coming in later emperors. But none of these emperors are honoring God. They're opposed to the God who is true. But he says, at the same time, submit to their authority. That can be confusing for us. Submit to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. That picture of submission all comes under the heading of for the Lord's sake. 
We do these things for the Lord's sake. We are his ambassadors, his representatives. God gets glory in the world through his church. I want to be very specific. If you, and I don't care if you're a donkey or an elephant, if you take lightly disrespect of the president or the congress or your local village council, if you take that lightly, then you are not rightly understanding authority. And it reveals your attitude toward yourself, you know better, obviously, toward others, they're a bunch of idiots, and toward God, who put them in place. How do I know that? Because the word's very clear. Peter just said, whether you're submitting to the king or to governors who are sent to punish those who do wrong, there's a purpose in the government. But who was the Roman governor during the time of the Gospels when Jesus walked the earth? Pontius Pilate. We all know Pilate, right? He's a great guy, super dude, right? Oh, wait, no, he oversaw the mock trial and crucifixion of Christ. Why don't we turn to John? Turn back to the left from where you are in 2 Peter. We'll just take a moment here to look at John chapter 19. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So if you're, if you're going back and you get to those names, you see where you're at in the order. John chapter 19. Jesus is standing before the governor whom Peter is saying we are to submit to. And notice that Jesus who could call down 10,000 angels to rescue him from this situation, is very specific in what he says to Pilate. He's already been questioned. You have the whole, you know, what is truth kind of thing. And Pilate tells the Jews, I don't find anything wrong with him. There's no grounds for condemnation, certainly not for execution. And the Jews say, oh, hey, man, you can't have that. We're not, we're not going to tolerate that. You know, anybody who calls himself a king is no friend of Caesar. Now, in, in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 19, Pilate has asked Jesus where he comes from. And he's not speaking geographically so much as he's saying, who are you? This is, this is crazy, this stuff's going on. You're talking about being the son of God and and the king of the Jews, and all this kind of stuff. Who, who are you? Where do you come from? Verse 10, Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? In other words, for you pro wrestling fans, he's saying, acknowledge me. Right? There is, there is a very specific thing that he's saying here. You can't. You don't have the right to sit there and be silent because I'm the governor. Boy, that doesn't make me want to submit very much. Although there is that part about I hold your life in my hands and if you don't speak to me, I'm going to have you crucified. Notice Jesus' response. And as, as we read this, think of what Peter says in submitting to the king or the governor or whoever else. Pilate is not 
a godly, good man. Jesus answers in verse 11, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Jesus is telling Pilate very clearly, You have authority because my Father says so. That's what Paul says in Romans 13. That's what Paul says in in Ephesians and in Colossians. It's what Peter says. All of these authorities, whoever it is, whether it's your math teacher or your sports ball coach or it's your drill instructor or the police officer who pulled you over and you think it's unjust or it's the tax collector or it's the president you didn't vote for, they have their position because God said so. Let that hang for a second. Our response to authority reveals our attitude toward self, others, and God. So they have this complaint because of their jealousy, and it reveals who they are on the inside, at least at this moment. It may not be a picture of who they are all the time, but in this moment, as they're overcome by their jealousy and sin, it's a picture of it. Now we see the confrontation in verses 3 through 10. Back in Numbers 11, by the way. All right, Numbers 12. I've been in 11 for a long time. Now, as we see this, there's this little phrase here, this little clause stuck in here, this parenthetical statement. The parentheses are not in the Hebrew. That's added here. Now, Moses was a very humble man. Your translation, if you have the... ESV or the NASB or some other one may say, may say meek, very meek man, more humble or meek than anyone else on the face of the earth. I, I have to tell you, I, I tried to study this and, and uh, I, I did not find a definitive answer, but I am not sure that this is meant as a compliment. Humility and meekness has to do with not standing up for yourself in this context. Moses, of everybody on the earth, is the least likely to stand up and defend himself here. That's that's the point. That's what's being said. We think of humility as a compliment, as a praise. I'm not sure that's what's meant. I'm not sure it's not either. I, I could be wrong about that. And this may have been written by Moses under the direction of the Holy Spirit, or it may have been uh, in, a, in a final editor of the piece written about Moses, and that's why we see it here parenthetically. In any case, the point is, Moses is not going to stand up for himself here. So God has to. And we see this in verse 4. At once, your translation may say, suddenly, there's an abruptness. They're in the complaining. They're, God hears it. Of course he does. He's God, right? And, and there's a, a kind of a jerking them by the collar feel to this. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. Can't you just remember when you were a kid and you're messing around with your siblings and you're fighting and you're causing a squabble and mom or dad says, get in here now. All of you. I want to see you in the kitchen right now. Or in the barn if you're, you know, like my brother and I causing trouble in the barn. It ain't good, is it? You just got called on the carpet 
and you can pretty much figure by the tone of daddy's voice, this is going to end up in the woodshed, for those of you who remember what that means. It's not going to go well for you. Come out here to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. Uh, yeah. Skip the line there for a second. <clears throat> the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron, Aaron and Medium. Miriam. <clears throat> Just got this face. I can't really do much with it. So anyway, as we are seeing this, the three of them are together, right? Moses is present. They're, they're all together. They're at the tent of meeting. He doesn't separate them, but he calls specifically Aaron and Miriam. What does that tell you? When mom and dad get all three of you together, convenient, I have two siblings, so that works out well for me in my mind. Maybe it doesn't for you, but you can work. All three of you are together because there was trouble going on. But two of you are getting talked to in front of the other one. The other one knows, <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> That's a good thing. But if you start getting cocky about it, then you're going to get in trouble, right? Moses, meek and humble, sits here with his mouth shut. The better you know God, the more likely you are to keep your mouth shut. You two, let's talk. God summons Aaron and Miriam. When both of them step forward, he said, listen to my words. And this is set in, in the form of a poem here, uh, which seems to sort of emphasize it. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, both Aaron and Miriam have served in that capacity. God has spoken through them, prophesied through them. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal to him, myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. Isaiah had a vision of God in the temple. The prophets that, that write in the Old Testament, they receive dreams and vision. And God speaks to them in dreams at night and visions when they're awake. Verse 7, but this is not true of my servant Moses. Moses has a different kind of relationship than any other prophet that we see in Scripture. God speaks with him in a unique way. And the only other thing we see close to this, and it far supersedes it, is Jesus himself. All the others, God uses parables. When it says riddles here, that's what it means, is parables. He uses these pictures. He uses dreams and visions, but with Moses, there's a unique communication. Now, it's interesting that he says this because isn't he talking to Miriam and Aaron directly right now? There's a certain face-to-face -face here, and yet there seems to be a different kind of face-to-face -face that he's referring to or mouth-to-mouth -mouth in, in a more literal translation with Moses. There's a connection there that's different. And he describes him in verse 7 this way. He is faithful in all my house. He's faithful in all my house. Interesting. With him I speak face-to-face -face clearly, not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. You may remember that from Exodus when Moses asked to see his glory and God says, you can't see my face and live, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by. And he gets to see that. That, that should be in our minds. 
But I think the connotation here is deeper. It's more. He gets to contemplate God as he is. He sees God. He understands God. He perceives and thinks about God differently than others. And then this statement, which I think is really the, the, the beginning of the climax. It's, this is the apex of the story here. Even more than, than the leprosy, this is the point. When God says, why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Aaron and Miriam, if this is my relationship with him, and I've spoken to and through you, but not like with Moses. Moses is my appointed servant. He is faithful. He's the one I entrust as the mediator, as the go-between, the spokesperson. He represents me. When Moses speaks, it's as if I'm speaking myself. Why weren't you afraid? How dare you? Who do you think you are? I'm getting goosebumps as I even say it. And I hope you are too. The living God, the creator of the universe, staring them in the face, if you will, saying, why weren't you afraid to speak against my chosen one? Notice this. God dealt harshly with their pride and presumption as he praised and upheld Moses. God dealt harshly with their pride and presumption as he praised, <clears throat> excuse me, and upheld Moses. Why were you not afraid? God confronts them directly with Moses right there in front of them. As he points out the special relationship he has with Moses, which is, like, which is unlike any other prophet we see in Scripture, he also commends Moses for his response to that relationship describing him as faithful in all my house. The same way Potiphar or Pharaoh would describe Joseph, the servant put in charge, whose word carries the very weight of the master's authority. Moses carried the delegated authority of the Lord Almighty. Who did they think they were to speak ill of the one the Lord had appointed? For God to upbraid them in this way and put them in their place would be terrifying enough, wouldn't it? But in his wrath and judgment, the Lord leaves Miriam with what appears to be a severe skin disease, described here as leprosy, which could have involved any number of skin diseases, not the disease that we specifically identify as leprosy, but a contagious, flesh-eating disease you saw the picture there of white as snow. She was leprous like snow. So her skin was white, whether that was the, the disease itself or the skin flaking off. That's the picture that you should have. A disgusting, flesh-eating picture. If you've ever encountered a rotting corpse, imagine a living, rotting corpse. That's, that's what you should see when you think of Miriam in this situation. This skin disease would have threatened a slow, agonizing, shameful death. And we saw in an earlier chapter 
that this leprosy or contagious skin disease represented uncleanness. Miriam's unclean heart is now publicly displayed in her unclean skin, no longer in secret. It's not a sin that just she and Aaron know about or she and Aaron and Moses know know about. It's not just between her and God. Everybody knows. Her shame has been exposed. Not only is her physical health compromised, her spiritual shame is revealed. God dealt harshly with their pride and presumption. How dare you? He praised and upheld Moses, who's faithful in all my house. All right, let's, let's apply this. Okay, so mark this down. Whom God appoints, God defends. Whom God appoints, God defends. This is a principle throughout the Bible. It's especially clear in God's dealings with Israel. You see it throughout the Psalms. You see it throughout the prophets. You see it in the history of Israel. The Lord himself will defend the honor of those whom he has chosen. That does not mean that nothing bad will ever happen to them, but it does mean that no wrong against them will go unpunished. Whoever touches God's chosen one touches the apple of his eye. I'm not going to have you turn there, but jot down these three scriptures. Psalm 105, verse 15. Deuteronomy 32, 9 through 11, speaking of the people of Israel. And Zechariah 2, 8. Well, the Lord says that very thing. Whoever, whoever touches him touches the apple of my eye. God defends the honor of those who represent him. Speaking against someone that uh, God has given authority or to whom God has given authority is not a small thing. It must never be taken lightly. We must be very careful about opposing even an unjust or evil authority because there is no authority that has not been given by God. We took a look already at Jesus and Pilate in John 19. Let me bring up a number of theodicy type questions what about the evil in the world what about the unjust leaders does that mean america is founded on sin and rebellion notice again this is an aside and i'm not speaking to defend the united states but just to point out a reality of the difference in worldview the declaration of independence was written to clarify for the world why we are doing this thing that would appear to be sinful Right? And it came after many offenses, usurpations, abuses. Throughout the history of the colonial times leading up to the revolution, there were many calling for revolution. But those who founded this nation didn't want any part of an easy, quick rebellion. It's, it's kind of the opposite of what happened in the French Revolution shortly after, where everybody's going to die, right? With, that's, we hate all authority. Everybody dies, right? You led, the, uh, you, you led the revolution with us. Too bad. You're in authority. You die. You know, we're, we're just going to kill everybody. We're going to re- rebel. We're going to rebel against God. We're going to get rid of religion. We're going to tear down the churches or convert them in, into uh, a, a shrine to reason 
there is a time when we must stand against authority. Somebody needed to stand against Hitler and Stalin and Idi Amin. But we must recognize that we cannot take this lightly. We live in a representative democracy. It's a very different world. A, a, a Republican form of government is very different than what we see in Scripture. It was an unknown thing. But the principles still apply. Our appointed authority, the ultimate authority in the United States, is not the President, it's not the Congress, it's not the Supreme Court, it's the Constitution. That's the rule of law that we follow. And the people give their approval to it. It's a government of the people, by the people, for the people. That's not a mistake. That's by choice. And part of that was because of enlightenment thinking that, that we needed to spread that power out, but because our founders recognized the sinful nature of human beings and the transcendent nature of God. That's why the Declaration of Independence is rooted in unalienable rights, not given by government, but given by God. We must, at all times, take very seriously our role in government in this representative democracy, in this republican form of government. It is not appropriate, fitting, or rightly representing the church of Jesus Christ for us to just bow out and, and have nothing to do with it. We don't really care because we're not of this world. We belong to a different kingdom. That's not fitting. Neither is it fitting for us to obsess about civic matters in this world as if that's the answer, the solution to the injustices of the world. It's not fitting for us to obsess as if this world is all there is. We answer to the highest authority, to the king who put all the others in place. Therefore, when we deal with unjust or evil authority over us, whether that is at the federal government, the state, local, or your boss at work, or how you handle a teacher or young people, how you handle your parents. Because sometimes, I say this as a parent, parents are wrong. Any kid says amen, I'm going to tell your folks. But it's true. I'm not God. So there are times when my children need to upbraid me, but they must learn to do it respectfully because God has put parents in a place of authority. So we learn how to handle authority rightly because our response to authority in all situations displays our inner self, our attitude towards self, others, and God. The way Miriam and Aaron handled this was prideful and presumptuous. They dared to speak against God's anointed without being afraid. You don't have to, to turn there, but for your homework, you can uh, take a look at um, 1 Samuel 24. In 1 Samuel 24, it's probably a familiar story for many of you. Uh, David is not yet king. Saul is king. 
and he has decided he hates David and he's pursuing him, trying to kill him. He's bringing an army against David and David finds himself in the uh, perhaps enviable position of his king who's trying to kill him, his pursuer, unknowingly in the same cave that David's hiding out in, to use the term that, that your scriptures will use, relieving himself. He's indisposed, extremely vulnerable, and David is there in a perfect position to kill him, and everybody is saying, this is your chance, take him out. And David doesn't want to do that. Because this is the Lord's anointed. Now Saul was an evil king who had already been rejected by God, but he was still the king God put in place. David cuts off a piece of his robe. And even after that, having cut off a piece of his robe, David is stricken in his conscience. He's convicted. What have I done? This is disrespectful to the king. Now it's the king that's trying to kill him, and he spared his life. But David was afraid of the consequences of usurping the authority that God put in place. Long story short, God ends up taking care of Saul and David becomes king. But David did not ever take that lightly. You and I must also never take it lightly. It's crucial for us to recognize whom God appoints, God defends. He will stand up for his people. We must be afraid to oppose those whom God has put in place. We see the complaint, the, the uh, confrontation. We'll finish with the correction. The correction. In the, the rest of the passage, we see what happens here. Uh, God having, uh, having struck Miriam with this leprosy, then... Uh, Aaron notices it. He sees that she is leprous. And he turns to Moses. Please, my Lord, do not hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. I think the ESV actually has a, a, a better rendering of it. There's, a, there's a more of a feel of the pleading. And I, I think this is one of those cases where the more literal translations actually get it a little better than those that are trying to, to get the feel of it without being word for word. But there's a, please, 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 God. Please, when Moses is talking to the Lord, please, God, please heal her. Aaron is talking to Moses, please, Lord. Lord, isn't this the guy you didn't want in charge? You thought you were equal to him? Interesting. Notice this. <clears throat> Seeing Miriam's plight, Aaron was terrified and humbled, acknowledging their sin and begging Moses for help. Seeing Miriam's plight, Aaron was terrified and humbled, acknowledging their sin and begging Moses for help. Begging him. Referring to him as Lord, do not hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. He's not putting it on Miriam. He's acknowledging he's a part of this just as much as she is. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. I think this is a combination, and I think Moses' response is also a combination of recognizing the situation, but also a love for their sister. 
It's one thing to badmouth your brother or sister. It's, well, it's one thing for me to have a fight with them, but when I see them in distress, that's another situation. How many families where you don't talk for years and you have some foolish rift between you? It doesn't seem foolish at the time, but then one of you ends up in the hospital on your deathbed and all of a sudden stuff comes home. And i got to get something right. Or that person passes and we regret the things we didn't say as well as the things we did say. Aaron's like, Lord, please don't, don't let her go like this. This is a horrible thing. And notice Moses. Aaron pleads to Moses and Moses pleads to God. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her. There's a repetition in a more literal translation. Please, Lord, please. I don't think this is a perfunctory uh, act of Moses being the mediator. Well, I, I guess I need to, you know, he's asked me to do this. I need to appeal to the Lord. Uh, there seems to be a genuine uh, begging for mercy here. And the Lord replied to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, showing a, a, a disgrace to her, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. She couldn't have been brought back if she weren't healed. So God heals her from this, brings her back. But don't forget, when you've been outside the camp for this uncleanness and you're brought back, you have to go through the cleansing rituals with the priest, who's Aaron, who was also engaged in the sin. But if, he, if God had given Aaron leprosy, he wouldn't have been able to perform the purifying rituals on Miriam. God knows what he's doing. As this comes together here, it's interesting to me that uh, when she was brought back, we're told very specifically in verse 15 that the people did not move on till she was brought back. Recall that the people moved when God moved them. When the cloud moved, when the pillar moved, then the people moved. So God, even though he's disciplining her, even through this rebuke, he doesn't leave her behind. God is merciful. When we humble ourselves, James quotes this passage back to us in, in James 4, that God opposes the proud. And we see how he deals harshly with, with their pride and presumption. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. They're broken by this. It's interesting that Miriam now has her mouth shut. I, I suspect that probably she's overwhelmed. She's just been stricken with a terminal disease. This is what's going to happen. She's as if she's walking dead. The, and literally, if you picture the advertisements, if you watch the show, you don't have to, of the walking dead. So this, this is a zombie look, right? Her flesh is rotting off. And it happened like that. They don't have medicine to cure this. Their only hope is God, and they're terrified. And I think she's probably weeping. I, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. It's silent here. But there's a humility in both of them and a repentance. We've sinned. Have mercy. Humbling ourselves allows the Lord to lift us up. There's an immediate change in Aaron. Both he and Miriam were Totally comfortable bad-mouthing Moses a moment ago, but when God shows up, they turn on a dime. Miriam's now silent. And Aaron, finally deciding to speak up, approaches Moses as my Lord and begs him for mercy, clearly recognizing Moses as God's representative like he should have in the first place. 
Moses, in profound humility and forgiveness, pleads with the Lord to heal the sister he loves, but who has totally betrayed him. Don't miss the fact that even though the Lord does indeed show mercy to, to Miriam and to Aaron, there remains a consequence for the unfaithful choice to neglect God's authority in Moses. She is put out of the camp for the requisite seven-day purification. This is a small picture of the big theme of the book of Numbers. Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but God remains faithful. Mark this down. The right response to God's rebuke is immediate humility, repentance, and entreaty. Yes, that might be an awkward word we don't use every day, but I didn't have another one that was better. Supplication didn't feel right. And begging for mercy was too many words. So, the right response to God's rebuke is what we see from Aaron and Miriam. It's a great picture, not only of their jealousy and sinfulness in their attitude, but in the change of their attitude, not because they suddenly had a revelation, but because they were dumbstruck with fear of the judgment of God. They were caught. And so immediate humility, immediate repentance, we've sinned. Don't hold this against us, please. And an, and an entreaty for mercy, begging for mercy, please heal her. This is the right response. 1 John 1, 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth's not in us. But 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's exactly what happened with the leprosy. It represented the uncleanness, the unrighteousness of her heart in God's judgment. And when God heals it, he is cleansing her of that unrighteousness. Humility, repentance, and a pleading for mercy, entreaty. This is the right response to God's rebuke. All right. Jealousy of others undermines God's authority and brings judgment. It's clear in the picture here, and it sets us up. It's kind of a bridge. It's a standalone story in a chapter, and we haven't seen a lot of that here, but there's a standalone story here in this chapter. We see the grumbling that's led up to it. We've got ten chapters of good, 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 doing everything the Lord commanded Moses. They start on the journey, grumble, grumble, grumble. There's a friction in following him. And then they complain about God's provision. They reject God's provision, and, and in so doing, they reject God. Now we see here that they reject God's delegated authority through Moses. They're opposing God's delegated authority, and in so doing, they are opposing God. They're opposing His will. We're about to see in the next chapter that God sends, tells them to send spies into the land to look at what this promised land is about. And I think we all know how that's going to go. They're going to see good things. And they're going to actually, in the end, this is a culmination. Notice how this, they, they reject God's provision, they reject God's authority, and they're going to reject God's promise. They're even going to reject the good thing they've been waiting so long for in their rebellion against God. Jealousy of others undermines God's authority 
and brings judgment. As they rejected God's chosen servant in Moses, so we tend to reject God's only son, Jesus Christ. They were jealous, and their pride kept them from accepting the special relationship God had with Moses. They wanted glory and credit for their own perceived accomplishments. But don't we do the same thing when our hearts tell us that we have to add our own efforts to the special relationship God offers through the Son, the mediator of a new and greater covenant? Our pride keeps us from accepting that Jesus alone has right standing with God and His righteousness is credited to us as a gift, not earned through our efforts. It's received by faith with no credit or glory for us. I'm going to read one last scripture for you. I was going to read it earlier in the service and uh, I had Shelley put it off till now. Hebrews chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. You can look it up later. But in Hebrews chapter 3, we see, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in the first uh, six verses here. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. We see the parallel. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. Moses, his, he's been given charge of all of it. And that's why God says, how were how you not afraid to speak against him? But notice, he was faithful as a servant in all God's house, verse 6, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope, with which we, uh, hope of which we boast. If our focus is on God's glory, if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, then we have no room for jealousy. When we take hold of the truth that we have nothing to offer God and we actually deserve only His eternal wrath because of our sin, and we recognize that Jesus Christ took that wrath for us, He took it for us then the reality of Christ crushes our pride. That's why it's so important for us to continually participate in that communion meal, the remembrance celebration, the Lord's Supper, which we'll do together next week. But every time we do that, it's a reminder that He got what we deserve so that we can have what we could never deserve. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And when we get that, when we see what He did to give us life, the reality of who He is and what He has done and His grace toward us crushes our pride. It's all about Him. For His glory and fame. It's not about us. As if God should do things our way. He's God we are not. 
And in light of His mercy, the only logical thing for us to do is to humble ourselves, to cry out for mercy, and to surrender to His ways. If you belong to Christ today, I want to exhort you to dump any jealous pride and embrace what God has appointed for your life without any regard for who gets the credit. Whether you're a janitor or the king of the world, as long as God gets the glory. Now, if you have not yet given up control of your life and surrendered to the Spirit's call to trust Christ and surrender your life, and you know inside, you feel it, you feel Him tugging at you. You know inside it's time that you repented of your sin and responded to His call, then see me out in the lobby or text me to set up an appointment. Whatever it takes, I would absolutely love to help you do just that. Let's pray together. Father God, you alone are God. There is no other. We must surrender to you, but it's so hard, Lord, when our pride gets in the way and causes us to be jealous of what you have appointed for someone else versus what you've appointed for us. It's hard for us in the friction of our following to trust in your provision, to trust your guidance, to trust the authority that you've placed over us. But Lord, we ask that you would humble us and cause us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Change us today, Lord. May those hearing my voice who do not know you surrender all and repent and turn from their way to your way and receive Jesus Christ as the payment for their sin and the Lord of their life. We pray this in his name. Amen.